Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a summer's day, heatwave over, storm clouds on the horizon and I'm in one of our favourite places, Copper Mines Valley with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. I love Coniston and this is a dramatic setting we're uh, in the craggy bosom, as it were, of Coniston Old Man, or the Old Man of Coniston, as it's traditionally been known as. We're in a, sort of an industrial landscape, but people don't really know it in that context. They know it is a great place to climb, to wander up on the established tracks, to claim the heroic mountain itself. Yes, and a sense of mild deja vu here, Mark, in two ways. Firstly, we were last here, I think, towards the tail end of last year talking about the copper mining itself and we were out with one of our favorite guests and in fact we're back with him today to talk about a not dissimilar subject introduce the guest mark and also what we will be talking about today well we're with my namesake mark hatton who has a tremendous capacity to explain the industrial roots of this landscape we were copper mining last time this time we look at the other element of the Coniston Massif, which is slate. Whereas the north side of this valley was dominated by extracting copper, the slopes of the old man was all about slate. And as Mark will tell us, it's kind of a hollow mountain. The amount of rock that was taken out of the old man itself is huge. So we'll get a flavour for the sheer scale of the industry here. And we'll learn about how slate was extracted, how it was shaped, the people who worked here, and how long this industry continued over centuries in this incredible landscape. Mark has also promised to take us underground, which I think is something of a country stride first. So we've got torches and helmets in our packs. He's talking about going into a cathedral. I can't wait to go inside the old man and we will get a very good deal up the mountain as well. So great day for it. We are slightly chasing the weather. Incoming storm at about four o'clock. It's about one o'clock now. So (laughs) off we go. Up the old man of Coniston. What a great spot to stand. I'm looking at the Coniston Massif, all crags rising in a great amphitheatre as I look towards the southwest, Raven Tor, and I can see Leverswater Beck coming way down into a, a bowl of scree and craggy slopes with uh, quarrying elements, and there's even one bit that still seems to be a little bit active. It's a dramatic mountain scene. And to explain this amazing setting to us, I've got one of our star performers in this industrial heritage theme, Mark Hatton. Wonderful to see you, Mark. It's lovely to see you too as well, Mark. It's been uh, a few months since we last met, but uh, great to see you again. You uh, have a great grasp of the industrial heritage of this landscape. You've gone into the bosom of the mountains. Can you explain what drives you to be involved with that heritage? Well, I think it started with just an insatiable curiosity for history and the way people lived and the way people made their living and what they've left us as evidence for that. And I kind of discovered for myself the the mining heritage of the Lake District just a couple of decades ago and then disappeared very um, strongly down that particular rabbit hole. And we're in one of my favourite places. As you said earlier, we're in the Copper Mines Valley. We're actually at Paddy End, which is the top end of the Copper Mines Valley, and we're looking up onto the flanks of the old man, an extensive set of slate quarries that we're going to visit today. These hold my interest because they tell many stories about the way men worked, the techniques they used, the struggles and hardships they faced, and the success and some of the failures they had. And thankfully here, although some people might not say thankfully, they've left us a huge amount 
remaining to be able to understand what was going on here. You mentioned Paddy End then, and I think that's to do with the copper, but can you remind listeners why it's called Paddy End? Yeah, because um, in the very late 1840s and 1850s, a large number of Irish immigrants came to Coniston. During the potato famine, um, you know, Ireland was emptying out, and a number of them came here and worked in the copper mines and then later worked in the slate quarries. Naturally. I mentioned Lever's Waterbeck. The other beck coming down is Low Waterbeck, isn't it? Absolutely. There's a little bit of a story to do with Low Water. One of my other passions is mapping. It's just a, an interesting story. Maybe gives us a flavour of the sense of humour that uh, the miners and the quarrymen had back in the day. When the Ordnance Survey first came here, about 1850, to map this area, they would inquire us to local people, what do you call that hill, what do you call that lake, what do you call that tarn, what do you call that river, whatever. And they would write diligently down all the names they were given and then they found their way onto the map. And after a long day of questioning the local people, they said, oh, one final question, what do you call that tarn right up high near the summit of the old man of Coniston? And the wag who was replying said, what do you think we call it, low water? And that was written down, and it's been low water ever since. But up until that point, everybody knew it as high water, because it's the highest tarn in the hills. Well, the quarrymen who came up from Coniston will have come up the Scrow, and this upland area, it was known as the Scrow in various elements, and there's a quarryman's track, and that, of course, is the way that walkers go today. And it led up onto the mountain. Now... Mark, can you give us a sense of the timeline of what we can see in terms of what was the oldest active quarries and the more recent and latest ones that we can observe? Certainly. So we're looking up a a big sweep of history as we look up the old man here. Now, actually, the oldest slate workings are the highest because on the higher reaches of the hill, the slate outcrops. It actually pokes out through the ground. So whilst it's very difficult to get to that place, it's very easy to extract the slate. As we come down the slope, the slate workings become slightly younger. And when we get down to this level here, we have the only working slate quarry, Low Brandy Crag, just in front of us. Now, the highest slate quarry on here is a slate quarry called Scald Cop. Now, we have no definitive evidence of when that was first quarried. There is some speculation that it was very early, so the 13th century, and was quarried to provide roofing slate for Furness Abbey and Calder Abbey. I don't think we can definitively prove that, though. The earliest really reliable records of slate quarrying here is sort of mid-1600s, but in that time the slate quarries are going to be described as quite well established, so clearly they're not starting in the mid-1600s, but that's where we first see them in the historic record. We're all aware of roofing slate, but this uh, slate was used for various thicknesses, for various applications and uses. Yeah, I think the earliest definitive proof of the use of slate in the Lake District is we have a Roman gravestone in the Armut Museum, um, dated to the first century, which is the gravestone for two uh, Roman soldiers called Lavinus, and that is a beautiful slab of slate. Now, the Romans tended to use clay tiles for their roofs of their building, but we do have some um, evidence that they may well have roofed some of their forts, uh, hard-knot forts obviously being one close to us here and close to your heart, that might well have used slate. But I don't believe we can definitively prove that because slate is reused. If the Romans did put a slate roof on it, you can be guaranteed that later generations will have gone and taken that slate away and used it on their houses and barns down in the valley. Other than the greystone, some of the earliest uses of slate was for bridging. They developed within the Lake District the uh, technique of using slate to build clapper bridges. Hence Clapper's Gate. Absolutely, hence Clapper's Gate. So these are where you're using large slabs of slate to bridge gaps. And if the water you're trying to bridge is more than, say, six or eight feet wide, you build pillars in the water and you put a six or eight foot um, slab of slate to that pillar and then another one to the next pillar and another one to the next side. And I think some of the clapper bridges that we have dotted around the Lake District could be very ancient indeed. One of the best ones is at Troutbeck Park. Really beautiful clapper bridge up Absolutely. Troutbeck Park. Absolutely, I know that one. And of course, everybody knows Slater's Bridge as well. Slate forms a very good material for many building purposes. Obviously, the one we all know today is the roofing, um, but it also creates lintels and steps and pavements 
Slate in different thicknesses and different qualities is used for many, many different applications over the years. Well, we've uh, set the scene. We've seen the various applications of uh, slate. We've got the timeline. What we really need to do is get our feet moving up that mountain to get closer to those quarries and particularly get to those caverns higher up, perhaps, before the rain comes. Rock everywhere, goodness me. Well, we've come up and joined the regular way, the tourist way up the mountain, which, of course, was the quarryman's way. We've actually got to a point where it levelled. Looks like a working floor with a great spoil bank above us, and we're veering off to the right. I can look down to the Boulder Valley, and I can see the pudding stone below us. But directly ahead of me, I see a little low building with a chimney end and doors and windows on one side facing uh, north and a pipe running down to it. Now, that is very intriguing to me. Mike, what's all that about? Yeah, Mark, so we've come, as you say, off the main path. We've just come around the bottom of this huge spoil heap to an area that is often overlooked. And surviving here is what's known as the smithy, also known as the powerhouse. As we'll see in a minute, this is a building that contains a lot of remains that demonstrate the activities, the work and the ingenuity that went on here. But what we can see from where I'm standing is a pipe that comes from low water, which is still several hundred feet above us, comes down across the crags and feeds into this building. And that's bringing water. Let's go and have a look to see what that water was doing. I'll be very interested. Wow, we've come into this smithy building. You can see the smithy, where the forge would have been, to our immediate left, through a little doorway. We've come to an area with machines, let's say, all in front of us, that date from, I would assume, the latter stages, the tail end. But this is significant and it really needs explaining. Can you give us the picture? Yeah, so what we're in now is the powerhouse. This was the building where power was produced to drive a generator for creating electricity and drive a compressor for creating compressed air. And the pipe we were looking at a minute ago that runs down across the crags from low water delivers the water at high pressure to a Pelton wheel. And the Pelton wheel is showing us in plain sight this turbo, this thinned machine where water hits those fins, spins it extremely fast, and it's that turning motion is powering via belts the generator and powering by another set of belts the compressor. And then behind me we have this huge tank, which is what's known as an air receiver, into which the compressed air is pushed and stored. So this tank, big solid metal tank, is holding air at a very high pressure and then from this tank, we have another series of metal pipes heading up the spoil heaps and disappearing over the skyline. That's delivering compressed air into the mines themselves. And inside the mines and at the entrance to the mine, that compressed air is powering air drills um, and also powering air winches for moving the slate around, lifting it up onto the carrying mechanism for taking it down the hill. So this would have been a really noisy, really busy, but in very important important building in the history of this um, set of slate quarries and mines dating to around about 1900 but used for the remaining decades of the mine before it closed in 1959. What really captures my thoughts here is that air compressor because that transformed the capacity to power into rock to get more rock for less physical effort. That's right. Where this originated in the Lake District was with the creation of the Thirlmere Aqueduct. So when Manchester Water Corporation started building Thirlmere Reservoir, they had to build an aqueduct, a long tunnel through Dunmel Rays, to carry the water on its beginning of its journey towards Manchester. And they used the latest tools and techniques to be able to drive that tunnel as quickly as they possibly could. And they brought the first air drills into the Lake District. And all the mine and quarry owners heard about this wonderful innovation that was being used at Thirlmere, went to have a look at it and couldn't believe the efficiency of these air drills. Because up until that point, drilling was done by hand. Miners would hold big metal pins, rods, 
against the rock and another miner would be slamming that with a big sledgehammer and laboriously manually driving a hole into the rock which they could then fill with gunpowder pack with clay put a fuse in set the fuse away and run away waiting for the blast which would drop the stone whether it was mineral for copper or lead or whether it was slate uh, where we are today and that was a slow laborious very energetic and very wearing process because men swinging sledgehammers underground for all their lives soon soon wore out and they couldn't go far in anyway. That's right. The depth that they could drive those holes was limited. But once the mine owners and quarry owners saw these air drills, they thought, we need some of that. So they maybe bought the old equipment off Thirlmere once they'd finished driving the aqueduct. And then they had to install the compressors, which we have in front of us. And then they could feed compressed air to these uh, machines that were used underground. And they radically increased the speed at which they could drill and the depth at which they could drill therefore they could blast more rock in an endeavor to get this pneumatic power to all the workings you've got a lattice work of pipes running up the mountain into the caverns that's correct people walking up the old man might often step across these pipes and think what on earth are these things doing they're delivering air distributing it around from this compressor house up to all of the workings. New pipes were needed to take it to different faces and constantly repairing leaks and and what have you. But all of these pipes, like so much other equipment, is now just spilled all over the hillside. In many ways, thankfully, when these mines closed in the late 50s, early 60s, there wasn't the need to clear up after themselves. So all of their machinery and equipment, to the extent that it wasn't taken away by the scrap man, and where we are here is very difficult for the scrap man to get to, has been largely left in situ. And so we can still go and see it and understand it, albeit it's rusty remains. To walkers, irritating. To industrial historians, a gift. Well, come out of that one space with the pneumatic gizmos, engines, the powerhouse end. We come back into the smithy. There's a bit of timber, big chunk of oak on the ground. Can you explain what we're looking at, Mark? Well, let's first understand what the smithy is needed for. Smithies were an essential part of every mine and every quarry. Because underground they're using metal tools, they're drilling into rock. And those tools have to be re-sharpened and refabricated on a very, very regular basis. And that was the job of the smith. And he had his smithy, ideally as close to the working faces as possible. And the miners would bring their blunted, foreshortened metal tools in here at night. And the smithy would work sharpening them and recreating longer drills. So we're standing beside his forge and there's lots of remnants to tell us. We've got the block on which the anvil would have been. What we see in the rock uh, at the forge and in the building walls is lots of holes, just an inch or two diameter that disappear into the rock. And you say, well, what on earth are they? therefore that is the smithy or the smith demonstrating how sharp the tools he's just made are he is proving to the miners that he's just created a really effective tool and he's demonstrating that by driving it into the rock so as we look all around this building at the steps outside the building and around the door to the building there's sample drill holes proving his art Can you give us a picture of the daily life? When did they start and what was the pattern of the working day? Yeah, so over the life of these mines and quarries, the men are typically living down in the village and they have to commute to work. And that is a hell of a walk. Just imagine walking up the old man before you even start your shift and at the end of the shift, walking back down the hill. And the story goes that the miners would walk up together early in the morning. Uh, During the winter months, they'd have lanterns to show their way. Um, And obviously in the summer months, they've got daylight. And they would run back down the hill at the end of their shift. And so they were almost like the first fell runners, legging it back down the hill to get back to their dinner and their bath. The Black Bull. Very importantly, into the Black Bull. Um, And apparently it was a regular scene that if you were walking on the old man any time over the last hundred years, you would see men running down at the end of their shift back into the village. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating to see this working environment 
tangibly, you can sense the energy, the hard labour, the brutal existence, uh, but the commitment of these guys. Now, what I'd really like to get to, and I'm going to climb the mountain before I ask the question, is what is slate? We climbed a bit higher, but it's given me a chance to look back north. It is an impressive sight looking to Weatherlam and Black Sail, that wonderful uh, ridge to the north. Many people do the horseshoe, where they go up Coniston or Manbrim Fell, Swirlhow, Weatherlam, and come back down to Coniston. It's a great fell day. It's a great opportunity to talk geology. They've got the volcanic rocks here. And slate, where does that fit into that story? Slate and the creation of slate is actually quite a complicated geological phenomena. Now, slate doesn't describe a particular type of stone. It describes a particular property of stone. So any stone that cleaves, the miners would call it stone with bait, which means it splits into evenly sized thin sheets, can be described as slate. So how does these rocks that create slate, how, how are they created in the first place? Well, there's two different groups of slate. There's volcanic slate, and that's what we're looking at today. But there's also sedimentary slate, and we can see sedimentary slate deposits just as we look south from here, down into the valley itself. So let me start with volcanic slate. We're in the Borrowdale Volcanics here. We're right on the edge of the southern edge of the Borrowdale Volcanics, which is a very volcanic very lively area of the planet hundreds of millions of years ago, 350 to 450 million years ago. The volcanoes, all their superheated materials coming up from the crust, bursting out to the surface. And one of the things that's venting out in vast quantities is volcanic ash and dust. We saw that a few years ago in Iceland where all the planes were stopped because of those massive dust clouds spewing out of the volcano that nobody can remember or pronounce its name. Well, that was what was happening over all of the Central Lake District. And huge quantities of ash and dust are being deposited in thick beds all around this area. But then the weight of that starts sinking through the crust of the Earth. And over the millennia, other deposits, other rocks and magmas are flowing across the top of that, which creates pressure and compresses those beds of material, squeezes them together. And then at some stage, heat is being produced as they're being pushed further down into the earth and the earth itself, all the tectonic plates are grinding around, creating temperature. Not massive temperatures, probably a couple of hundred degrees. And that's the recipe you need to produce slate. You need pressure and an oven, a couple of hundred degrees leave that to cook for a few million years so these beds of material the minerals the crystals within them realign by the pressuring process and as the pressure squeezes down the crystals reform bedding or lines to uh, right angles to that pressure and that is what gives the slate cleavage it will split across those lines of crystals that have been formed by that pressure um, and then stir the mix a bit then have all this thrusting upwards and all this folding of the earth the bed that we're in now is almost a vertical bed that would have been laid down horizontally but over the millennia and as the earth is forming and moving around so much that bed is completely uplifted to create a near vertical deposit of slate that had this wonderful property of cleavage you mentioned that there are two distinct forms of slate and how it is formed this is the volcanic what was the other one so the other one is sedimentary. As we look down from the mountains into the valley of the Vale of Coniston Water and across to Windermere, those rocks are formed by a sedimentary process. So that's muds and silts being deposited in shallow seas and deltas and riverbeds, washing down fine grains, clay material into the valley floors and that settles down into beds of thick muds and silts. How does it get dense? Exactly the same process as we set up here, but that forms such 
thick beds and it's pushed down into the crust of the earth where it gets heated and the pressure is applied that develops slate. There's one other ingredient down there that we don't have up here and that's carbon. So down in those shallow seas we have lots of critters, lots of slithering, swimming, growing animals and plants in the Ordovician seas. It's alive with creatures. Those die and, and settle in the same muds and they're made fundamentally, like all organic material, is made of carbon. And so the slates that you tend to find in the sedimentary deposits tend to be darker slates. Brady Quarry is a really thick, dark black slate. Um, and Kirby Moor, which is another sedimentary deposit um, off in the distance from here, is a very dark, bluish-tinted slate. Those are created by the carbon content. And many of those slates don't split quite as finely as the volcanic slate, and they tend to be used for slab quarries, which is used for sort of work surfaces and um, building materials and paving, um, and that tends to be what those lower quarries are used for. You mentioned about the various slates, like the Brady Slate, Kirby Moor. There are other notable slate quarries in the Lake District, like Honesty, you might say. Can you give us a bit of a picture of what variety there are, the greener slates? I think we can generalise that there are four or five beds of slate deposits through the Lake District. There's the northern deposits that are clustered around Borrowdale, through Wye Foot and up Rig Head and across to Honister, and they're a green slate. So they are volcanic slate, and the chlorite crystals within that slate gives it that green hue. Now, just near us here, just a few hundred yards down towards the valley from us here, there's another green slate vein, and that comes through Kirkston, Pets Quarry. Um, it comes through to Elterwater, across the Tilberthwaite Valley through Hodge Close, and then comes over the quarries that I can see from here, which are ironically called the Blue Quarries, but they are green, goes over the flanks of the old man through Brosson Quarry and um, gets to Broughton Moor, which are all big quarries that were quarrying green slate for centuries. What we're standing on right now is what's known as a silver-grey band of slate. And again, this starts over in the Tilberthwaite Valley at uh, Penny Rig and then Betsy Crag. It comes through all the old man quarries that we're looking at today, goes over the back of the old man into Cove, and then goes across to Walner Scar quarries. Each of those um, deposits have subtly different tinges and qualities. Some rive better than others, some rive thicker than others. But generally, we're talking green slate is what the Lake District is famous for. And this grey slate was what was produced in vast quantities as well. I think everybody who comes to the Lake District comes to Keswick or somewhere like that and sees a great mountain, Skidder, made of Skidder slate. Is that true? Well, Skidder slate is arguably not actually slate. It is more of a shale. You'll notice in many of the places where that rock outcrops, it's more crumbly, it's quite dark. It hasn't been subject to the same pressures and temperatures that um, good classic slate is produced. So the rock isn't as well bonded, it hasn't developed the same cleavage properties, and so actually it wasn't as anything like as sought after for building and it wouldn't generally work for roofing. There are isolated areas where it did develop the properties of slate, but the vast majority of it is really just poor quality shales. It's a vast spoil heap of nothing. <laughs> That's just written off a third of the Lake District. <laughs> We've come away from the smithy and rejoined the regular tourist path the rain is abated just a bit it's misty but you can just still see back down to coniston waters that's a comfort and what we've got underfoot is not just a tourist path but we've got an industrial path and in fact what we're able to witness is two modes of conveying the slate down the mountain and perhaps mark you can explain to me what we're looking at 
Yeah, so anybody who walked up the old man on this main path will be familiar with this area. It's a very roughly steep path through big lumps of slate with cables lying around the place. But as you say, Mark, this reveals two different forms of transport for bringing the slate down the hill. The old man quarries are high up on the hill and it's a steep descent back down to the village. So transporting the slate was always problematic. The earliest solution was using sledges. So they built pitched paths with slate lying on its edge, creating a very smooth surface that the rails or the runners of a sledge pulled by a man or more commonly pulled by a horse could slide the finished slate products down this steep path all the way down to the village where it would be transported down the lake on a boat to low Nibthwaite, where it would then be transshipped onto a cart and carted to Greenod. It was actually a port. Many people would be surprised to know that Greenod was a port back in the 1700s and 1800s, and then it would be shipped away to market. In later years, when sledging stuff down the hill became um, too time-consuming and too low volume for the amount of material leaving, at the very beginning of the 20th century, so early 1900s, they built aerial ropeways, which are like ski lifts. If you imagine if you go skiing where you're sitting on a chairlift being carried up or possibly down the hillside on a chair dangling beneath a cable held on pylons above you, that's exactly how they brought slate down the old man. And so these cables that you step over on your way up this path are the fallen remains of these lifts that brought the slate down from the upper workings on metal carriers and brought it to a floor where it was then rived and dressed and made into finished slates. And then lorries could actually drive almost up this far and you can actually see the remains of some of the lorries dotted around on the hillside. And from here it would be driven down Now, at one stage, there was five of these aerial ropeways working on the old man. But surprisingly, we have no photography, or none that I'm aware of, of these aerial ropeways working. So if I can make an appeal, if anybody's got any photography, right up to the late 1950s, these were still here, showing these aerial ropeways, I would dearly love to see those pictures. Indeed, and Alfred Wainwright, he must have seen it. This path, whilst used by generations of walkers, was created by generations of quarrymen. And they would have conflicted with each other for much of the 20th century. When tourism found Coniston and um, many people started to walk the hills for recreation, they would have walked past the quarrymen carrying the slate down the hill and they would have to step out of the way to save themselves being squished. I'm sure many a crossword was said between the two. I think the reason why we don't have photography is people came here to look at the rural landscape and they would turn away, certainly point their cams away. You know, photographs were precious in those days. Every click cost you money. You weren't interested in taking photographs of the working environment. You wanted the natural landscape. And I think that's why we have so few, if any, photography of these works still in operation. Alfred Wainwright mentions the the people who would be on the summit and they were looking to Blackpool Tower. (laughs) (laughs) They could have been looking at these pylons down here. Anyway, they would plod a bit higher. Crikey me, Mark, where have you brought us? We came in through a a modest little cave door, as it were. Uh, We had to don uh, helmets and a head torch, and I'm holding a hand torch. We came in and in, we kept coming in. I could tell the temperature differential. Uh, It definitely changed. There was considerable vapour in the air. And then we've come to something of a cathedral, because it goes up. I don't know, well over 100 feet, maybe higher, I can't judge. Could you describe this? So what we've done is we've entered Middle Moss Head. Uh, This was a quarry working that was developed in the Victorian era and operated right the way through till the end of the operation of the mine in the late 1950s. So what the miners have done is they have blasted the way through worthless rock to intercept the slate vein at some depth. 
and then they've worked the slate vein from various levels, low moss head, middle moss head, upper moss head, and then the top working on this particular part of the vein is called spian cop. And eventually, the top three of those levels have joined up. So where we're standing right now, we can look up, it's well over 100 feet, through three different levels, from middle to upper to spian cop. Um, and this huge void gives us a sense of just how much rock has been extracted from this mountain. The old man is, you could describe, hollow, but thankfully not too many people realise that. This is a dangerous environment. We've got the right equipment. We know what's going on here, but I would certainly caution people should not wander in here without proper guidance and awareness of the risks. Well, this is quite an amazing space, but my uh, first reaction is, how did they work this space? So in the 1700s and early 1800s, the miners formed companies of men. And typically a company would be five or six men with different roles and they would strike a bargain with the mine owner. In those days it would be the Le Fleming family from Rydal Hall. That company would consist of men who did the underground work, the blasting and the extraction of the big clogs from spaces like the one we're in. They would then push those big clogs out today where another man would be responsible for pushing those clogs or transporting those clogs to the riving sheds that we'll visit later and there the other men in the company would be involved in the riving and the dressing of those clogs to make finished slates and at the end of a month or a quarter they would have run up an account with the quarry owner to say right you have produced x tons of finished slates. Uh, we're going to deduct from you the cost of the gunpowder you've used, the cost of the candles you've used, and this is what we now owe you. And in a particularly bad period, the company might owe money to the mine owner because they haven't produced enough slate to even cover their running costs or the advances that they might have had on their pay. Later generations, the company system and the bargaining system starts to die out in the Victorian era and they become waged. Employees of the mine, obviously on various bonuses and peace rates for, for the shifts they're doing, but the nature of their employment changes over the years. Would there be a more than one gang? Oh yeah, these mines at various stages in their life would employ dozens of gangs. I don't think the slate quarries on the old man ever employed hundreds of men but it certainly employed dozens and dozens of men, possibly up to 100 men at some of the busier, more productive periods of the operation of these quarries. You know, you've got to bear in mind that across the Lake District, there's over 200 slate quarries. Now, some of them are tiny. Some of them are just enough to produce walling stone to build a farm and do what the farmer needs to wall off his fields. And some of them are huge, like, you know, Honister and Rosson and, and Broughton Moor and what have you. And the old man is probably up there with the size of the top half a dozen slate quarries. The other big slate quarry in the area that people will probably know is Hodge Close, when you're looking down into that huge pit. Bear in mind, that pit would have started like the cave we're in here. It would have been an underground working, but at some stage in its life, they've taken the roof off. They found it harder to extract slate through tunnels. Uh, they take the roof off so they can lift the slate up through the roof. Well, that was the chosen working method at Hodge Close. Uh, but here, they didn't take the roof off this particular working, because if you took the roof off here, you'd almost be taking the top of the old man off. Here they've continued to work the quarry from inside the mountain and in many ways the miners preferred to work inside the mountain because they're protected from the weather and the mine itself is more stable when it has the roof on it. The four walls are intact, you know, the side walls, the floor and the ceiling are intact and that's more likely to make the box stable. When you take the roof off it, the sides are not as well supported and there was many accidents at Hodge Close and the adjacent quarry at Parrick where the walls, the side walls of the quarry collapsed and killed and buried men and machinery 
So the close head that we are in, which was the miner's name for an underground working, was the preferred working format. And Cathedral Quarry has its roof taken out, doesn't it? And that distinctive flake of slate. Cathedral Quarry, in fact, where that pillar is, most of the roof is actually intact there. There is one skylight out today into the big open pit. So Cathedral Quarry is a, an example of both a close head working and an open working that's had the roof taken off it. Now, this is... Uh, a dynamic environment and uh, disturbing stone like slate unsettles the mountain and occasionally things go awry. There must have been accidents. Yes, there were accidents. Um, men were killed or badly injured in these mines, these slate mines. Not as many as you might imagine. The uh, old mine workings were generally regarded as relatively safe. There was other mine workings or quarry workings which had an unerring tendency to injure or kill men. One of the most dangerous things in a mine is collapses, rock falls and roof collapses. On the way up here, we passed a huge open void called Light Hole, where the roof fell in in 1950. Now, the miners probably knew that was going to happen. They would spot the warning signs, the, the little creaks, the little splinters of rock starting to come out of the roof. And they would have anticipated that was going to happen. And I believe they probably accelerated that event. We know that's the case because the big collapses tend to happen on a Sunday morning. There's no shift of work on a Sunday. On a Sunday, all the miners and their families and the other villagers are in the church. But some miners will have come up to the mine. They will have laid some big gunpowder charges where they believe the rock is unstable and they've blown the roof off. They'll have come back to work on a Monday morning and shown surprise and awe that the roof's fallen in when they weren't here and they'd all be counting their blessings that God was looking after them, but actually they had a hand in it. But the, the mine owner wouldn't have liked that event because when the roof falls in like that, it what's known as rubbishes up the mine. It fills the mine full of rock that can't be cleared. So light hole quarry, when the roof fell in in 1950, never worked again. The different uh, quarries had distinct names, perhaps attributed for historic reasons. Yeah, the, the really interesting one here, when we look right up to the ceiling here, we're looking into a working called Spian Cop. Now, that working was first developed in 1901. And people might, who know their history, know that in 1900, Britain was fighting the Boer War. And there was one particularly famous battle, the Battle of Spean Cop, in January 1900, where the British forces were defeated by the Boer forces. Now, that battle, therefore, you know, resonated with the people back home, this great defeat, the loss of lives. And Spean Cop means lookout hill. So cop is Afrikaans for hill, and spian means like the spy place where you can spy on the surrounding countryside. So it was a sloping, rising bit of ground forming a hill. And to this day, the cop, or spian cop, was a name that was given to a number of different places around the country, most famously football grounds. So the cop at Anfield, there's another cop in Sheffield. That's a sloping, rising terrace that the spectators would stand on. And it looked and appeared a bit like the hill at Spean Cop, where men lost their lives in the Boer War. The mine above us is on a sloping part of the old man, and that's why they chose it to name it Spean Cop. Well, I'm staggered in, in complete awe in what I'm seeing. I can see the mist in the air. It's amazing. But I believe we're going to go a little higher to get a, a further sense of wonder before we find safety of the outdoors. Well, we've made our way beyond that great cavity further up a definite incline with the rail track, which has brought us up to the very crest to the top of Spian Cop, and we've got still the mistiness, but boy, what an amazing place. Can you tell us a bit more here, Mark? Yeah, so we're now in the Spian Cop workings themselves, and we can look down to where we were earlier, 180 feet below us. All these workings were connected up 
during the early 20th century or middle 20th century to allow rocks from here to be lowered down several levels and then extracted further down the hill where it was lowered down on the aerial ropeways. But the men who worked up here are working on a very high and very exposed face of the old man. Many of them probably would have spent the night up here. Some of them might have commuted backwards and forwards from the village, but uh, that's a hell of a commute. Working up here must have been extraordinary. And there's one particular story that took place in 1937 that I think illustrates the severity of the conditions they faced. So the men were working in here one day and they were aware that it was snowing outside. In fact, it was snowing so heavily, quite a lot of them decided it's time to go. We need to get down the mountain because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. Two men decided to work on and earn a bit more money. They then eventually themselves decided time to go, four o'clock in the afternoon, starting to get dark. They went outside and they were horrified to find just how deep the snow was and how almost blizzard conditions it were. They set off down the mountain and then they were caught in an avalanche. Both of them were tumbled over and over in the snow and one of them managed to free himself of the snow, got up but could not find his work colleague, looked around for him, couldn't find him in the deep snow, was getting terribly cold, so he went down the hill to raise the alarm. The miners had one initial look for that man but couldn't find him and they decided they had to go back to the village to get some more clothing and get some more lights and get some more volunteers to help them. They went back down to the village and they came up in the dark, 7.30 at night, and with lanterns, much of their warm clothing was literally dressing themselves in Hessian sacks. And they were determined to find this chap. But the wind was howling and the snow was falling. It was really difficult to find him. But thankfully they did. This man had been under the snow for hours and hours. But he managed to have his hand just poking out of the snow. And they found him. They carried him down in a very frozen and distressed state. They warmed him up by the fire at their Saddleston bank. And then carried him down to the village. And he did survive. But um, it just reflects the severity of the conditions working up here, the risks they took, but also their desire to look after each other. Those men were all prepared to risk their lives looking for and saving one of their colleagues, for which one of them was awarded the George Medal, uh, which is the highest award for miners rescuing miners in the time. Well, that's a phenomenal perception on some heroic men. Amen to those men. Before we do the amen to the podcast, we'll go down, escape from Spiankop, and see the tail end of the whole history of the mines lower down the mountain. Feeling warm Well, we've been into the heart of the mountain. We've seen uh, how it was extracted and we've come back down towards Saddlestone Bank. Well, this place actually tells us the next phase in shaping the product itself. Could you explain what we see in front of us, Mark? So, Mark, as you say, we are now on Saddlestone Bank. So this is just off to the right of the main tourist path as people come up. There's a collection of buildings and there's some old rail lines. And if you look closely, the cables, the big heavy cables, are flowing down the hillside to this point. So this bank for many years was the main processing bank on which the finished product was made. So the heavy clogs of slate were carried down the hillside, they were deposited here, and we can still see the rail tracks on which they were dropped. And those rail tracks run into the cutting sheds. So there's still the remains of a big electric saw in there where the big slate clogs would be shaped to nice oblong blocks. Those oblong blocks would then be transferred to the sheds to our left, which have got a sign on them saying riving sheds. And riving is where they're splitting the slate into continuous sheets. And then they were passed to a dresser who then cleared up the edges and shaped the slate exactly the right proportions to then be taken down the hill where they were transported to the market to be put on the roofing for houses and buildings all over the country. Could you describe the actual riving process? 
Yeah, so riving was a highly skilled process using tools that were almost unique to the Lake District, riving hammers, which was a sharp-edged hammer that was swung at the end of the clog of slate or the block of slate just in precisely the right place to split it evenly. In later years, those skills started to dwindle and they just used hammer and chisel. But in the earlier years, they used these riving hammers. And what's really interesting is the only other place in the world where riving hammers are used is northern France and Belgium. And that would tend to support the original theory that the skill of the slateman came to England with the Norman conquest. And the earliest use of slate, possibly from the old man itself, was to roof the great Norman religious houses. If you think the earliest houses would have been roofed with animal skins, and then turfs, and then thatch, and then you start putting stone. And when you're building big religious buildings, you can't thatch those. So you had to develop the ability to produce slate to roof the big religious buildings, which the Normans did in spades. You know, they built abbeys all over and monasteries and what have you, all over Britain as part of their conquest, demonstrating their superior abilities, skills, uh, knowledge. Just imagine the Englishman looking in awe at these wonderful structures. So possibly the riving of slate has come into Britain with the Norman conquest and has developed in these mountains to roof the furnace abbeys of this world. In later centuries, roofing for the vast majority of housing in agricultural areas would have still been thatched other than very close to slate workings like this. But then you get the ability to transport slate further. You get coastal vessels, and then critically in the early 1800s, you get the canal reaches Kendal, and slate can travel by canal down into Lancashire to roof all the enormous development of mill towns in the Lancashire mill towns. And then later still, the railway arrives at Coniston in the late 1850s, and then you're connected to the whole of the country by rail. The volume of slate being produced and the cost of delivering it to market, one goes up and one goes down, the cost comes down, the volume goes up, and therefore the demand for skilled rivers and dressers goes up and up and up, and that's really the heyday of these quarries is when the railways arrive. So does the word slate have its early roots in the near continent? There is a theory that the word slate comes from an old French word, esclat, which means to split, and again that would tend to support the Norman connection. Do we have a grasp of the extent to which Lakeland slate was used around the country? Up until the 1700s, the slate wouldn't travel too far. It would be used for local market uh, purposes in the Furness Peninsula and in Cumbria itself. Deeper into the 1700s, the development of the coastal shipping and Greenard as a port allows it to go further. Some of that slate would still have found its way down to London because a ship leaving Greenard could sail all the way around Wales, around the south coast and up into the Thames estuary and deliver its products into London. has to be said, the biggest source of slate in the 19th century was Wales. Wales produced 10 to 20 times as much slate as the Lake District would be, maybe even more than that. Huge quarries in north and central Wales. But nevertheless, Lakeland slate had some properties that made it very attractive because of its colouring. Now, in the 20th century, the slate travelled even further because there are places around the world, architects, that really liked the look of Lakeland slate. Even Bill Gates's house in Seattle, it is said, is got elter water slate cladding that house because it is such a beautiful colour. I remember Bill Burkett when he was telling us about his dad who worked at Moss Rig. That was used in the reconstruction of Coventry Cathedral after the Second World War. As I say, decorative slate is the main market because in the 20th century, roofing tiles become mass-produced baked tiles, concrete tiles, and, and people are stopping using slate for such high-volume, low-value purposes as roofing. But they find a new market in highly decorative architectural finishes on churches and fancy buildings and public buildings all over the country and, and indeed all over the world. Every successful industry is exposed to ups and downs, is the one that you can identify with slate. At times, demand exceeds supply, so the price is high and, and the quarrymen are making a good living. 
At other times, demand falls and output is high and therefore the prices fall and the coinmen are struggling. And then at other times, taxes were applied. During the Napoleonic Wars, a shipping tax was introduced that operated from roughly 1800 to 1830. And that had a very damaging effect on the industry because it made the cost of transporting Cumberland Slate around the coastal waters to the bigger market towns and bigger towns like London prohibitively expensive. And that created a recession. But through the rest of the 19th century, you have ups and downs. You've got some good times in the early 20th century. And then you get the impact of the war. The First World War, it wasn't a preserved occupation. So the quarrymen, certainly the younger quarrymen, had to leave to fight in the trenches. And lots of the quarries really struggled to keep going. When the war finished and the men were demobbed, a lot of them didn't want to come back to this way of life, working high on the hills and struggling up from the valley floor each day. So they they really struggled to get the workforce. Then you get to the Second World War and a similar phenomena where you get so many men leaving to fight in the forces that the quarries are struggling. But then you get a real uplift in demand when Britain is being rebuilt following the Second World War. All the bomb damage to so many buildings and so many big towns, those roofs needed to be replaced. And so there was big demand for slate. But once we get into the late 50s, that boom is over and the volume of demand is falling and we're getting smaller higher value demand but the big volume demand has shrunk and that sees the end of these quarries in 1959. Well you pushed us further forward with that fascinating passage Uh, we ought to go down the hill a bit to actually see the tail end of this whole wonderful industry. Despite the weather and the descent to be a bit slippery because it's quite slick when the rocks are wet. Uh, We've come down quite safely, thank goodness for that. You come down to the low bank, spoil bank. Uh, So I'm looking across to Weatherham, but no, it isn't there. (laughs) Complete missed it out. Actually, at the foot of the slope there, I notice what looks like a chassis of a vehicle of some sort. Mark, what on earth would that be? Yeah, so beneath Low Bank here, we've got the remains of uh, a lorry. And this would be one of the lorries that was used to take the slate away from the mine in its final few decades. That lorry was just being abandoned up here. It used to sit on top of the spoil heap, and at some stage it's been pushed off. And now we have the sort of skeleton of the chassis, the remains of the engine, the brakes and the axles. And it's just lying there sort of reflecting the really the corpse that is this quarry now. It's a beautiful corpse in many ways and possibly the thing that people will see most clearly when they look for this quarry is the massive spoil heaps. They are remaining forever in the landscape. Every one of these rocks that we see on these huge spoil heaps has been lifted, carried, transported and then tipped. Everyone has got the fingerprints of miners and quarrymen and there are millions and millions of them, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of rock. In many ways, slate quarrying is a tremendously wasteful exercise. Something like 95% of all the rock that is extracted is effectively thrown away and only 5 maybe as much as 10% is sold to the end market. So these spoil heaps will remain forever as the legacy of the miners that worked here. journey's end and we're back in the car park down in copper mines valley i'm kind of wet through mark i'm wearing drainpipe trousers well not strictly but they feel like drainpipes i'm in my shorts because for the last what eight weeks it's been sweltering <laughs> i was freezing cold down there in the quarry oh in the caverns the temperature dropped to a mean temperature of about six degrees yeah, it never changes. It middle of winter, middle of summer, it's the same temperature <laughs> deep in the mountain. But, yeah, wow, right, that was pretty extraordinary. I mean, we have quite a few wow moments on Country Stride, but for me, that's up there. 
This mountain is a labyrinth of hollowed out caverns and I didn't have a clue. No, quite not. Now, this is it. Yeah, when you're with somebody like Mark who uh, has put a lot of passion and thought into exploring and protecting those elements in the industrial landscape that otherwise would be ignored or rubbished. There are, as I think he told me, there was something like 220 slate quarries of different scales all around Lake District. But this one is pretty special, and it's on a mountain that's a popular tourist mountain, and yet few people understand what they're seeing. A vast amount of it is invisible, but what's visible is explainable, and Mark went to great pains to explain how it operated. Coming to the end of the podcast, if you'd like to support us so that we can carry on doing these, the thing that is most helpful, you can either buy our guidebooks, our Country Stride guidebooks to the Lake District, www.countrystride.co.uk, or please, you can support us on Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you can help us afford the uh, not insignificant hosting fees. Uh, And you can find out more about how you can support us using Patreon again at www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social, Mark. Facebook or Twitter at Countrystride1. Yeah, please follow us there for your lovely linescapes and bits of news. And we've got a date, I think. We have finally got a date for our Country Stride Live, which is going to be in November of this year with brilliant guests including I think Mark Hatton so please either sign up for our newsletter or keep on listening for the exact date when you'll be able to uh, buy tickets for that which should be great well we've had a great day out here Mark um, we're signing off for today until next time on Country Strike.